You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers. This is an episode of The Spoiled Yak with Saya, Anissa, and Barma. Hi, this is Anissa. I'm without my co-conspirators this episode, but I am joined by special guest Refresh Demon, writer, Korean film aficionado, and friend of the podcast, to talk about Bong Joon-ho's latest film, Parasite. If you haven't yet seen Parasite, go watch it first, because spoilers abound. Plus, if you only see one Korean movie from last year, it should be Parasite. And a quick note, this was recorded before Oscar nominations were announced. This podcast is a project by fans for fans, and if you enjoy what we do, there are many ways you can help us grow. You can share the podcast with friends who love dramas, leave a review on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice, or help keep our lights on by going to patreon.com slash dramasoverflowers. We love to hear your thoughts and ideas. We always read comments on YouTube and Drama Beans, but you can also tweet at us at dramasoverflow or email us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode! Hi everyone, this is Anissa. I don't have Saya and Paroma with me today, but I have a very special guest, uh, Refresh Demon. Hi everybody. Hi Refresh, um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Of course, it's our honor and pleasure. I've known Refresh digitally for a few years. Um, it's really nice to finally get to know you in a real voice, I guess. Um, and he's really, he's a really awesome, like film reviewer, um, writer, and he's got a lot more knowledge about Korean films than I do. So I thought it'd be really cool to to have him on. Um, and we're going to actually review Parasite today. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your experience and history with Korean film, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, no problem. So I am Korean American and I grew up watching Korean film primarily on like videotapes that my mother or my father would borrow from the local Korean grocery store. Uh, if you know the Korean American experience going back to like the 80s and the 90s, a lot of the ways that diaspora Koreans would end up watching Korean stuff is their local grocery stores would often have a, just a library of VHS tape recordings that they would get. I don't know if they imported it from Korea or they like had some other like local people that are just recording broadcasts that somehow made their way to the U.S. But that is how my parents would watch a lot of variety shows, music shows, and movies. Mm -hmm. And so that is kind of how I watched a lot of Korean movies from the past, but a lot of those movies that I grew up watching were really bad. Um, so I actually <laughs> had a very, very negative impression of Korean movies until the nineties when I, my parents would constantly take me to Korea. And so I would often spend entire summers in Korea, but in the nineties, my, during a trip to Korea, my father took me to watch this movie called, I think it's Injung Sajung Polkadopta which is Nowhere to Hide. And mm. it was a movie by Lee Myung-se. And the movie is is a sort of detective, procedural, hunting down the criminal type of movie, but it was done in such a amazing style. Like it was sty stylistically like nothing I've ever seen before. Every scene had its own very specific visual style that was put to that particular scene. And so some scenes like had this, you know, slow motion, almost impressionistic sort of effect on the the way that it was filmed. And then others had 
were in black and white. And it was just a really interesting film to me as a young person that was interested in filmmaking. And so that got me particularly interested in Korean film. And from there on, I, I was just hooked and I wanted to like find out more. And at that point, the internet had gotten to a point where there was a lot of Korean film being talked about on the internet, even though it was hard to access at the time, because this was like before the real presence of DVD and it was, and DVD was accessible. And even in Korea, you know, people were still providing Korean film on VHS and not DVD. And so Mm -hmm. if you wanted to get Korean film, like if your local Korean grocery store didn't have it, you'd have to like ask somebody in Korea to bring it back for you. And so, I was part of this Korean film community at koreanfilm.org, which is run by uh, Darcy Paquette. And in those forums, we were constantly talking about the newest Korean films and so forth. And so as that went on in the er- late 90s and the early 2000s, I I got really into Korean film. And from there on, like, you know, because I, I was a film major and I studied film and I tr- was trying to be a filmmaker at the time, like... I just fell deeper and deeper into film. And I've been interested in Korean film ever since and have been following it up until like maybe the last five years where I kind of fell off the grid in terms of being able to keep track of what's going on just because the industry's exploded and mm-hmm. it's become a lot more commercial. And I'm just not as interested in, you know, mainstream commercial film. Yeah. That's really interesting what you say about your experience, like in the diaspora with the VHS tapes. And because for me, um, I, you know, I'm, my family is originally from Pakistan. And mm-hmm. when I was growing up, we would always, and like the Pakistanis also are really into Bollywood and like Indian film. And so when mm-hmm. we were growing up, like that was the main way to get Indian movies was just to like go to the local Indian grocer. And like you said, they would literally just have this counter um, with this like uncle behind the counter and he would just have all these VHS tapes. Um, they were all like bootlegged or I don't know where they got them from. <laughs> um, and then later on that became like these, bootlegged dvds there were some bcds for a while mm-hmm. some laser i mean there were all kinds of formats but yeah that's a very familiar experience like you go get your samosas you go get an indian movie um you bring it back next week you get another one so yeah it's interesting how like our communities have had very similar experiences before like you know now it's just so easy to yeah. you know just go on netflix and it's not you don't necessarily have the availability of everything that you would want, but it's definitely not. Like you said, sometimes you just have to ask one of your family members to get you, or you would have to wait until the next time. Um, like I also used to go pretty much every year to visit my family. Um, mm-hmm. And so we would just like wait and, or we would like see them when we went, we'd bring back like music tapes and things like that. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is like Korean film is now, fairly accessible but not perfectly accessible even still because Mm -hmm. it although it is popular and the biggest titles will usually get pirated and put all over the internet for anybody to download a lot of the smaller titles or the indie titles are are still sometimes don't even get dvd releases and even even if it would be easy for people to pirate them nobody cares enough about them to pirate them especially in korean film and so Sometimes you just can't watch something, even yeah. if you want to, unless you like go to a film festival or if you're lucky to buy one of the you know small print runs of DVDs that they do. And I often find myself like scouring the internet to like find certain titles and like, 
oh my gosh, this is available on DVD. Oh my gosh, I have to pay $300, like get a DVD yeah, off of eBay. It's, yeah, it's like such a tiny little market and it's hugely inflated because you just can't. And I think um, that's kind of related to one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about. I know you said you're not as familiar with more recent stuff, but mm-hmm. I have also thought a lot about, I mean, I'm part of, for my thesis, I'm doing um, Korean and Indian like media and pop culture and how that relates to post-colonial nationalism in both, in both countries, mm-hmm. um, sort of how that relates to national identity, um, especially when you're looking back at like the colonial era and right after the colonial era. So it's, it's been really interesting to me as well as like an American looking at like what's available to us international audiences and how like there's this perception of like Korean blockbuster horror films being like basically all there is. And, and the more, and then when you start learning more about it, I mean, obviously I'm like a baby in my knowledge still, I don't know much, but there's so much interesting and varied and like, nuanced stuff going on but it's not really as you said like there's not really international interest in it and it just kind of even domestically those aren't the movies that really get a lot of push commercially so that's yeah uh, that's a shame i think one interesting thing about the way that the west in particular consumes um asian media or for media on the whole, but particularly Asian media, is that they're really only interested in two kinds of movies that come out of Korea in particular. I, I can't speak for all of the the countries that produce movies, but for Korea in particular, people in the West are only interested in, one, prestige films. And that's like true of any sort of film industry, like you know the big movies that you could see as an Oscar contender, right. if it were in English. Like Those are the movies that actually somehow work their way into film festivals and win stuff. And that's how there is any sort of publicity and awareness of those kinds of movies. And then the only other parts of cinema that really grab attention from people in the West are genre films because, you know, people that like horror movies are happy to watch horror movies from wherever. And, you know, they're used to watching the same thing from wherever they're from. And so sometimes getting a different perspective or a different setting makes a big difference. So people that are into horror movies or action movies or not as much sci-fi and fantasy, because I think Hollywood sort of owns the market on those two types of genres until more Mm -hmm. recently um, because of, you know, limitations of budget and special effects and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of genre films are really the only other type of film that really makes a splash around the world. And so if you even look at what gets distribution on now Blu-ray, but back then DVDs, it was primarily genre film. And so your small dramas, your comedies, your more commercially oriented like romances usually don't make it outside of Korea to the West. Now in Asia, Korea has exploded and you know become a powerhouse thanks to the Hollywood wave, and and all that. But but in the West, like people don't really know about what's going on in Korean film, unless you mm. are particularly interested in Korean film or you're interested in, in genres. Or if a movie like Parasite, for example, gets a lot of buzz on the the film festival circuit, and manages to capture the attention of a lot of critics and that's pretty much it you know the last yeah. korean movie to like make any sort of splash was uh busan uh train to busan 
And that's, you know, very clearly a genre film, right? Mm. There was also, was that before or after The Handmaiden? I think The Handmaiden was before, but I think we'd have to look that up. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think Handmaiden was like either 2016 or 2017. Yeah. But they were close together, I think. Yeah, that's true. Um, and The Handmaiden falls more in that prestige category, whereas Train to Busan it falls in that genre category. But, right. So you kind of have both. Yeah. Yeah. Both proving your point. Yeah. And, you know, like the Criterion Collection is an example. Like they have exactly one Korean film that they have worked on, and that is uh, Secret Sunshine, which, you know, very much falls into that prestige category because it's a um, – a drama by, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name. Lee Chang-dong. Right. And, um, and, you know, he sort of makes a lot of prestige type dramas that are really good, to be honest. Um, they're not just prestige because it's some biopic or something like that, but a really good prestige drama. But that's what it is. And, you know, Criterion Collection is known for just doing like high quality, critically acclaimed movies. Right? right. Which is like a smaller audience anyway. It's kind of like a rarefied audience to begin with. It's yeah. not like a mainstream. Yeah. So The Handmaiden and Train to Busan came out in the same year. Okay. That was 2016. Yeah. And they captured two very different audiences. Right. And only one of those got like the Oscar critical, you know, critical reception. Yeah. And the Oscar buzz. Yeah. And it still didn't even make it, the uh the shortlist, I think, if I remember no, correctly. It didn't it didn't make the shortlist, I don't think. Yeah. I think I think Parasite is going to be the first movie that is almost certain to make the shortlist. And if it doesn't, uh, <laughs> I'd be I'd be very surprised if it doesn't make the shortlist. I agree. And, I would yeah. be also very surprised. I've heard so many critics talking about it as like the best film of the year. Not yeah. even like the best foreign film of the year, but like the best film of the year. So yeah, 100%. I, I, don't, I don't think I've heard that before. Yeah. I know that we're supposed to talk about the Oscars later, but it's just naturally segs, segues no, no, into it. Totally fine. <laughs> but yeah, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about, actually, would you, would you like to talk about, um, the development of Korean film before we ha- jump into Parasite. Um, I'll, let's. I can talk about it a little bit in terms of Bong Juno's own like career because you know the development of Korean film is is a huge thing to talk about. Um, yeah, and I don't want to give you like five minutes to talk about so much stuff. So yeah, that's that's a good idea. Yeah. So Bong Juno himself, like his. First short film, I think, was in 2000 or 90, somewhere between 1998 and 2000. And that was, you know, before he made his first feature. But 90, the 90s is what people often consider the new wave of Korean cinema. And that's because uh, that's where a lot of experimenting happened. And it moved out of the original model of Korean cinema, which was just to produce and crank out a lot of movies as much as possible because the cinemas had a quota that they had to make. And so the local cinemas in Korea had a quota of Korean films that they had to show. And so a lot of Korean films were were built and made on the cheap so that because they were guaranteed to sell. And so they didn't really have to work on quality, for example. Now, there were a lot of 
auteurs at the time doing quality work, but you know, they all, those auteurs were also just cranking out like genre films just to fill mm-hmm. out the seats. And Bong Joon-ho came at, towards the end of the new Korean or the Korean new wave where the, the substance of Korean film had started to change and Korean directors were being, were taking a lot more risks in how they wanted to present their movies and the kinds of stories that they were telling and the style through which they would be telling those stories. And so he came towards the end of that and his first movie was uh, a higher animal or barking dogs never bite or a f- the dog of Flanders. Cause th- there's a lot of English titles for this movie for some mm-hmm. reason. And what's it was, the original Korean title, uh, which directly translates to a uh, dog of Flanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's based on a painting or a book or something like that. Uh, yeah. It's not like a French, a French book or French. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, it's, it's European, right? The original work. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it is an adaptation per se, but so I didn't 100% know what the connection to the title is, but that's where his first movie comes in right around the early two thousands. And that movie is a work of dark comedy. And you can definitely see the experimentalism from the, the Korean new wave having an impact on his movie, but his movie comes in in the early 2000. At that point, Korean cinema had started to cement itself to the point that when they dropped the quota system, and that was part of the deal that the, that Korea had to make with the, the international financial organization. Um, what's the name of that? Oh, IMF. Yes. Yeah, I think they had to make a deal in the 90s with the IMF that caused Korea to make all these concessions and do all this austerity stuff. And after, yeah, in 97, after the, um, the yeah, IMF. After the, yeah. yeah, the market, the Asian market crisis. And so um, part of their deal was that they had to get rid of the quota system. But by that point, Korean cinema had had enough success internally that Korean film was able to stand even without the quota. And although there was a lot of of panic about the the loss of the quota and so forth even in t- i think the de- the deal wasn't at the 90s but in further negotiations throughout the early 2000s so there was a lot of panic about the loss of the quota in the early 2000s but that's where they come in and korean film has managed to stand without the quota even after that because it actually managed to capture enough domestic share of the market that's where huge hits like my sassy girl came out and other like you know early Korean cinema movies that not only were big in Korea but managed to like spread out of Korea, and that's also kind of the point where Korean dramas started to to have a stronger influence outside of Korea as well. That took that really took off a little a few years later with um, Winter Sonata, I think. But I think that was a few years later. Yeah, I think Winter Sonata was. Oh, I don't remember. I know it was late '90s, early 2000s, but no. It, it, yeah, it was early 2000s. I don't remember exactly when that was, but that's where you can see the Hollywood wave starting to rise outside of the Hollywood wave and into new Korean cinema, and that's where Bong Joon-ho really had a start. And his first movie wasn't well received by critics, but it wasn't like a big hit. It was his second movie, uh, Memories of Murder, and that's like right in the middle of new Korean cinema in 2003, I believe, 
where like the Korean cinema film industry had like really found its way of making movies very efficiently. The quality of the productions has also increased significantly in the, in just like the distance between the late nineties and the early two thousands. And so you can really see, like if you watch a movie from the nineties and a movie from the early two thousands, the production quality just in film stock production style, like the industry had really congealed and become a, a serious contender in Asia just in that mm-hmm. point. And that's where Memories of Murder came in. And that was a huge hit for Bong Joon-ho. And so that movie is sort of the big hallmark of where the industry, as well as his own career, would go. Yeah. And it's really well regarded even today, like internationally too, I think. Yeah. I, I, I still consider, I think it's still my favorite Bong Joon-ho film, but Parasite is definitely is definitely contending with it. So that is basically where the Korean film industry goes into the new Korean cinema. And I think we're past like that phase where Korean cinema is really finding itself and it has its own pattern and its own goals and everything now. And so even into the present where like Korean cinema has got to the point where it's making the Korean film industry and not so much Korean cinema, but the Korean film industry is making impacts all around Asia in particular, and like trying to reach out to the West as well. Like Korean, the Korean film industry has made a lot of subsidiary companies or co-productions with other companies, like oftentimes remaking its own films ad infinitum. Like we're talking Mm -hmm. like, there's this movie about the granny that goes young, right? And I think they've remade that movie like four or five times all over Asia. Yeah, that has a lot of remakes. <laughs> yeah. So are these are these um, remakes that the production company itself is involved in, or do they just give the rights to somebody else and say, like, here, you guys can make this? I think CJ is actually actively trying to make it themselves for the most part. I think with certain types of countries, I think they have to do it with a local country. Like if for the Chinese remake, I think they had to do it with China because of the way that the government controls like who's allowed to to make anything in China. But a lot of times, I think CJ just creates a local office and is like, okay, we're going to do this remake here. Mm. But I think it's a by-country by country basis. It used to be that Korean cinema or the Korean film industry was really happy to just sell the rights to films to get remade. And that was primarily in that Asian horror craze of the early 2000s where, you know, they had remakes of like all sorts of Korean film, as well as, you know, the remake of My Sassy Girl and Lake House. Uh-huh. They um, were so bad. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, that was that time where they were happy just to sell the remake rights. And now Korean, the Korean film industry is much more interested in being a producer. And so you can see that with like Snowpiercer and deals to make, I think there have been some more recent deals to, have CJ produce or co-produce um, other films in the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah. So the the article that I had sent you earlier, mm-hmm. um, and I took it out because I wasn't sure if you wanted to to discuss it or not. Um, but if you, they actually the CEO of the of CJ actually talks about that, or somebody high up in CJ that like, I guess he was trying to be a little bit more, or they were trying to be a little bit more diplomatic. But they were basically saying that they tried the whole like selling the rights to American companies and just letting them remake it, but it didn't work out well. (laughs) Basically they were bad. So now that they actually want to set up uh, like an American 
like a small operation that is still sort of reporting back to the headquarters in Korea. And then eventually once it gets established, they'll just let it, you know, be independent. But, but yeah, echoing those, I guess, I guess I didn't realize that that's not limited to the U S but they've also been doing that in other countries. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The Koreans are working. They're taking advantage of the presence that they've established with the Hallyu wave and, and running with it. Yeah. It's very smart. Yeah. So more specifically, should we jump in to our review of Parasite then? Yeah, sure. We can talk about Parasite. So what are, what were your general thoughts on the film when you first saw it? So I first saw it with my brother in the Sunset Theater in Hollywood. And honestly, I had my expectations going into the film were actually kind of low because I was not that enamored with Bong Joon-ho's last two films, Snowpiercer and Okja. I thought they were okay, but both of them had some serious flaws that I couldn't look past and mm-hmm. to really enjoy those movies. They, I mean, they, they were still had a lot of value to them, but they just, they didn't really nail it uh, in terms of telling an interesting story with interesting characters that has like a real journey for those characters and still made sense. And I think the making sense thing was was one of the hardest parts, but he was working in science fiction in both areas. And I, I think that is a hard genre to do well in. And so, especially if you're trying to make thoughtful science fiction and not just like, you know, robots and spaceships and aliens like star Wars. So, yeah. um, <laughs> Oh, harsh, <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> oh my gosh, I saw the Rise of Skywalker last week. Yeah. Oh, have uh, you seen it yet? <laughs> I, I have seen it, and I am preparing my review, and it's not a positive one. Um, but uh, regardless, like it, it's hard to do like thoughtful science fiction well because there is a lot of thought and that you have to put into not just the themes, which I think Pong Juno did well, but into why this happens and what the implication of this happening, like this science fiction trope happening is on like the world at large and what's, and, you know, and Pong Juno also has like this really quirky sense of humor that he's had since the very beginning, like the very yeah. first, even his very first short film was like this, had this like weird quirky section where a bunch of like higher ups in society were talking about all the problems with society. And it was extremely hypocritical. Uh, but then in his, in Barking Dogs Don't Bite or a higher animal or Dog of Flanders in that movie, he had like this intensely long scene with, um, wow, what's his name? The actor, the old guy from, um, the grandfather from my girlfriend is a Kumio. Oh my gosh. I haven't seen that drama in like eight years. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Pyoni Bong. That's right. Okay. So, in the movie, he's like this uh, a part janitor who is doing some really suspicious things. But he has this long scene where he just tells this long story to Lee Seung Jae's character, and it's just wild and weird. And and then you have the host where you know you have that like all sorts of ridiculous like comedy scenes, and and that sensibility like didn't translate that well to I think Snowpiercer or to Okja. Um, I think the there's type- also an added, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I think there's also an added challenge because like he's so um, skillful with like dialogue and language. Mm-hmm. 
of course, he's also really skillful with like visual storytelling, which translates easily. But then like the way that he uses language is so smart and interesting. But then like when you're dealing with an international cast, I'm sure that presents, you know, I mean, like he's fluent in English too, right? Like I've heard his English interviews. He seems to have really good English. But then there's always that what you want to communicate in your native language and then like how you have to sort of um, convey that to your actors who are speaking a different language. And yeah. I'm sure that adds like an added layer of, of complexity to the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. And it didn't help that like some care, some actors like Jake Gyllenhaal would just like chew up the scenery, like in every scene. That it he was, was in. so <laughs> weird in that. Oh my God. I agree with you about Okta. Like had really interesting ideas, but some of the execution was. Yeah. Um, it was ultra quirky. Yeah, it was it was kind of a lot of pieces. I don't know if they fit together quite well into one cohesive um, story. Yeah. So going into Parasite, my feelings were like, well, I don't know. It, like, can he do it? Like, at, at, by the time I'd watched it, it had already won con. And so I was like, okay, maybe it has a chance of being a good film again. But I wasn't I still wasn't sure because I intentionally try not to read too much about movies or watch their trailers like their full trailers so that I go into a movie relatively fresh without expectations. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had the expectations of all his previous films. And so um, going into it, I wasn't sure, but like that movie, like as soon as I sat down in the seat and they, they started going into just the visuals of how it looked and the sense of quirkiness that was there. But if Instead of like feeling out of place, like in Okja and Snowpiercer, it just felt like right because Bong Joon-ho was in Korea. He's making his Korean films again. And the comic sensibility that he has like just feels right in Korean film. Whereas I think there's a level of translation that just doesn't feel as correct in when it, it's set in the West. If And I, it's hard to really qualify or qualify why that is is like that but i think in some ways comedy doesn't translate well over cultures unless you become acculturated to the culture that it comes from yeah and 100 agree yeah so it just felt right yeah like the hypocrisy of the college student that is the friend of q or cheo shik's character q Mm That, like, the way that he's talking about, like, oh, it's going to be, I, I just want you to watch this girl, you know. Like, when he's gone away, like, Q is not going to be able to just take over and claim that same spot in her heart. Like, it, it's just kind of silly, right? Because Q didn't make it to college, but he's smart enough to be in college. It's like this weird ignorance, hypocrisy sort of thing that I think a lot of Korean comedy does really well. But it's very subtle, you know. It's not like in-your-face comedy that mainstream comedy does, like in Korean film, and all that kind of stuff just felt really in place. And I was like invested very quickly, especially when um, uh, Q or Cheoshik's character would constantly talk about how metaphoric that rock is. That <laughs> I was he just gonna bring as that. A gift. <laughs> and that I'm like, so great. Wait, is it metaphoric for you, man? Like, or are you just like? trying to be smarter than you actually are like wh- what is going on with this rock thing but at the I also end, feel like that was like a little bit of meta winking at the audience too yeah 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 that's true 
So, yeah. The thing about Parasite that I found fascinating, and not it's not fascinating in the sense like this is amazing, like something that I never thought, is that Parasite is so much on the surface. Like everything is is right up front and Bong Joon-ho doesn't like try to like embed any story underneath that you have to really deeply think about because so much of it's on the surface. You know from watching the movie that it is about class. Like there's no way to jump around that, right? Anybody who watches Parasite and goes, no, 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 I don't think it's about class. It's just like, it's being willfully ignorant of yeah. what the movie is about, you know? And everything on on in the film is so much on the surface but there's so much of it and it's so well integrated and tightly wound into one complete story and i i found that to be really impressive but on top of that you have all these genre elements that like fuse like there's the dark comedy the satire of of the wealthy and the poor and as well as a thriller which it like transitions to uh and we, we're talking about spoilers, right? So it's... Oh, yeah. It's full spoilers. Okay. Okay. So if you don't want to hear this, all the spoilers here, then it's time to cut out of this and, and come back <laughs> after you watch the movie. Yes. But but as soon as like they start talking, the, the rich family leaves, the Pak family leaves, and the Kim family is hanging out and they're talking about the... And the wife and the husband are talking about cockroaches, right? And how... Mm. Like the moment that the rich family comes back, like Kitek will become like a cockroach and just hide, right? Um, that and then at that point, like they hear the doorbell ring and it suddenly becomes a thriller, right? It goes yeah. from like this like heist. It's kind of almost like a caper film where they're trying to figure out a way to like get into the into the household. And a comedy into a comedy slash thriller. And then like at the end, like it takes a slight turn towards more horror like elements with like, you know, the fight and the or the post fight and all the grisly like potential death that's happening. And then, you know, the straight up stabbings that happen at the end of the movie. Yeah. And like it's not a new thing for Korean film and Bong Joon-ho in particular to like genre fuse. And that's, you know, been a thing that's happened in Korean cinema since way, way back in the day. But it, well, by way back in the day, I mean like during new Korean, during the Korean new wave and then new Korean cinema, but like it, it just feels so organic and right in Parasite for all yeah. these, these switches to be happening and I think that was another thing that just really impressed me from the, from just watching it the very first time. I haven't watched it a second time, by the way, but I think all of that will still hold up. And then the last thing that really impressed me with the film is just the craftsmanship as a filmmaker and how Bong Joon-ho embeds the themes of his movie into the visualization of the movie. And so one of the really rad things that I always found interesting is how the camera and the characters and the mise-en-scene is always arranged in a way that the wealthy people are often looking down on the poorer people like throughout the entire movie and so even from the very beginning you have like that hill that goes up to where um the rich people live at the top of the hill and then everybody at the bottom and it's always like they're looking up to it and it almost never like shoots down from the hill looking down at the 
the Kim family because、mm-hmm. the perspective is always from the perspective of the Kim family, right? Right. And so you almost never look down except when the Kims are themselves are running away from the house at the end because、um, they managed to escape,、mm-hmm. right? And that's when you start looking down. But you're looking down with the Kim family, looking back to the home that they're going to. It, but even then, a lot of times they're showing the shots from below, looking up at the Kim family is coming down, like going down the staircase and、uh, under the bridge and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of really well defined、uh, spacing, and also there's like lines that are constantly dividing the the wealthy people and the poor people throughout the entire. Movie and that's even embedded into the dialogue as well with how the、um, Lee Sung Yoon's character,、uh, the pa- Mr. Park, I forgot his actual name, but how his character would always talk about Kitek, like our Song Kang Woo's character, like potentially crossing the line but never quite going over it.、Mm. But if you look in the film, like there's so many points where there's just like really visible lines that one the rich characters on one side of the line. The poor characters on the other side of the line, and I think the most obvious point where this happens is where when、um, Cheoshik's character goes up and is waiting for the the housekeeper to get、um, uh, Cho Yeojung's character, the the woman of the house, and I, I forget her name as well. I'm sorry for forgetting all these names. No, no, it's totally fine. Her, I mean, I'm looking at the IMDb, and her name is Young Kyo, but I don't think we ever hear that. So I think it's probably easier if you just refer to her as like Mrs. Park. Okay.、Um, well, you don't really call people by like women in Korean society actually don't get called by. Yeah, which is weird that they have listed her as having the last name Park in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably wrong. I'm, yeah, I'm guessing it was- it's wrong. It may have been translated that way because、um, the translator of the movie understood that the Western audiences wouldn't understand if they had her name as something else.、Mm-hmm. So it may have been intentionally translated that way on the Western credits for Western、yeah. audiences. But you know, she's not Mrs. Park. She'd be whatever her her own family name is. But anyway, regardless, the scene where the housekeeper goes to wake her up because she's like napping on the.、Uh, In the garden, right, and Cheoshik's character is looking down at them. You see、um, the gardener walking towards her, and there's the line which makes the corner of the window from where he's looking down at them, or I think it might be just a break in the window panes. But there's a line that the housekeeper is on one side, and then、um, Cho Yeojung's character is on the other side, and like the housekeeper never physically crosses that line. Except when Cho Yeojung's character won't wake up, so she like reaches over, crosses the line, and then claps right in her face, which wakes her、mm. up. And that line is maintained the entire time; like her body never goes beyond her arms crossing that line. Yeah. And I thought all that like is just so meticulous and so well crafted, and and that's not even to talk about like the the flooding scene, and that was like just like wow, how did you pull that off? That was like, incredible. Yeah, I I was wondering if they just like found some neighborhood that they could flood, and I was like,、so、are they, you serious? They actually built that entire set for the movie,、yeah. and they yeah, that was that was insane. I mean,、yeah. he, I guess he's at that point in his career. We can, I was listening to an interview, and、um, the interviewer was、uh, I think maybe from the Ringer, but they were、mm-hmm. asking him 
how did you feel like, you know, you've made your last couple of movies outside um, or like as international productions and now you're like back in Korea making this. And he's like, it was just so comfortable, you know, like the studio didn't bother me at all. I just did whatever I wanted. I was like, that must be nice. He's like, he's at this point in his career where he can just be like, this is what I'm going to do. And everyone just, you know, does it for him. So, but yeah, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah, well, here's one interesting thing that you have to know about how Korean cinema and to some extent, it's an extension of Korean society works is that in Korean cinema, the director is the king of the production. Like, ah, so he's not going to be getting notes from like the producers saying like, you have to change this, you have to change that. Yeah, yeah. In general, the directors are usually free. It's changing a little bit more now as the cinema gets um, a bit more corporate. But like old school directors like him or Pak Chanuk or some what somebody that's already made it, they're basically the king of their set. And the the co- entertainment companies that would hire them on are kind of like, okay, you you do what you're gonna do. This is your money to do what you're gonna do with. And they mm-hmm. just kind of let them do their thing. And so a lot of and auteur like I think this is one reason why auteurs like have developed in Korean cinema so well is because of the the sense of authority and respect is that's given to the people in charge. And so Kam Lung-im, like the director, is the most revered person on the set because they're the boss of everybody. And so right. everybody has to sort of bow down to them. Now, this doesn't always work out to the good. Like there are many, many terrible Korean films that are re- released every year. And I think some of that could be because there's no producer that like looks over the director and be like, you know... Maybe you should not do that thing that you're going to be doing, but because mm-hmm. the director is the god of on set, you know nobody listens to the producer; they listen to the director. And so, directors that have you know weaknesses don't really have much of a way of being fixed, except if you know they get chastened from a poor box office and they don't get another film for like ten years or something like that. Right. Interesting. I didn't realize about that difference. I know. Um, so we had, I took a Korean cultural literature class um, at, as part of my master's program last year. And we mm-hmm. had, um, we got to have actually Kim Ji-won come and visit our campus. Mm-hmm. Um, it was right around the time, I think it was right after Ilan came out, um, which was really bad. Like we had to watch it for class. It was pretty, it was rough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we like, we got to like have him come. Um, we did a screening of... A Tale of Two Sisters, and then another screening of The Good, the Bad, and the Weird. Um, and then he actually came to our class and talked to us um, mm-hmm. and just answered our questions, basically. Um, and one of the things that we asked him about was, um, oh my gosh, I totally lost my train of thought. What were we just talking about? Uh, the director as God and the culture of Korean or Korean culture as it relates. You were taking a class and yeah sorry i i had something that i wanted to say about that but he was but he was telling us about um how oh yes this is what it was he was saying because he also came um i think a lot of the people and he, he i think they have a name for their group but him and like park john book um like all those really big name filmmakers that are of the same generation they mm-hmm. kind of have their own like group and they like hang out together and like drink together yeah. Um, and a, a bunch of them have like, you know, crossed over and done some work, you know, in, in American cinema. And he was talking about how like it was really hard to leave 
Korea where everybody knows him and it's really, I guess, very comfortable. And then to come to America and like, nobody knows you. And also, I guess he was like, the system is really different. Yeah. Um, he didn't go into detail, but I totally understand then if that power dynamic is not the same, mm-hmm. especially he seemed to really enjoy that power dynamic from some of the comments that he's, he, he told us, like when we asked him yeah. questions. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I remember, I think I was at a Q&A with him, actually, after watching the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie he made, um, The Last mm-hmm. Stand. And, you know, he didn't, I think he was being very uh, politically mindful when he was responding to questions about how it's like to work in the U.S. But you could see that it's not like he was, a, he, you could see that he wasn't like super excited about his movie. Oh, <laughs> um, and that might just be part of the process, and I think that's because the yeah he he's used to being like the boss, right, and yeah. not having producers being like, okay, we gotta have it like this and like this, or having the actors not defer to him. You know, like I'm pretty sure Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of the bosses on that set because mm. you know he's Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So yeah. So yeah. that it's not like your lead actors are like, you know, coming and greeting you in the morning and being like, what should I do? And being super deferential. Yeah. Arnold's definitely not going to be doing that. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I think like some Korean actors are probably big enough that they might have a stronger influence on set. Like Song kang is definitely a person that I think would have a stronger influence on set. But even if you watch the banter, like between Bong joon and Song kang there is a bit of deference to Bong Juno that Song Kang Ho offers. But you know, they've they've been working together so long that they're almost like friends in mm-hmm. in in their vibe, if not necessarily in person. Yeah. So even if you don't necessarily have that um hierarchy, you have that comfort of knowing somebody for a long time and yeah. just working really well. And I mean the two of them I think are like um one of the pairs, you know, of directors and actors that will go down history. Honestly, I think they're so great. Yeah. Their projects together. Yeah. Yeah. Even their weaker projects, like it's not Song Kang was a problem, you know, like Snowpiercer, yeah. like he was, he was perfectly fine in that movie. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that they work really well together. Although Song Kang is like, everywhere in korean cinema so <laughs> I, I don't... he's also like a genius so i feel like i'm never gonna get tired of him yeah it's true like i i often liken song kang as like almost a tom hanksian type of actor from korea because it, it's not like you're you think he's an amazing looking actor like he looks like a, a guy you know mm. <laughs> he could be somebody's uncle right yeah but is it, and it, so it's not for his looks that you're impressed by him, but it's his performance, his comic sensibility. I remember the first time I remember, like I actively remember seeing him was in the Kim Ji Un movie, the Pan Chi Um, the Foul King, right? And that in that movie, like he is. Have you seen that movie? I haven't seen it. No. Okay, in that movie, he is a a bank worker who encounters this uh, pro wrestling gym and basically finds a new life for himself like working out and trying to become a villain pro wrestler even though he wants to be a hero and like it's 
a absolutely wacky, crazy, weird movie. And Tong Gang Ho is one of the reasons that it works so well because of his like weird, like comic sensibility that makes him like turn from like serious face to crazy face or being able to like say crazy things with the most serious face on. Yeah. But I think like it sells him so well. And ever since then, I've just like, if Song Kang-ho is in it, even if it looks like it might be a bad movie, I'm still kind of interested in watching that movie because I think he he can elevate poor material by virtue of his performance alone. I totally agree. And he's he's got this like weirdness to him, mm-hmm. like this really amazingly delightful weirdness that is just it just like brings this extra layer to every performance. Like he doesn't there's always like five things going on in his face. And yeah. all of them are so fascinating. Yeah. Which is which is really which is why he pairs so well with, with Bong Joon-ho because Bong Joon-ho is also doing like multiple things at the same time and all of his stuff is always working on multiple levels. But even if you will understand like the surface, it's still so interesting. Yeah. Oh, but the interesting thing about Parasite in particular when it comes to like the performance is I think as an ensemble, the cast did really, really well together. You know, oftentimes when you see Song Kang-ho in a movie, it's like the Song Kang-ho show, right? <laughs> like, mm, he's yeah. just so dominating. But in this one, like, I think Jo Yo-jung in particular does an amazing job whenever she's on screen, like, portraying that, like, frantic, manic character that, like, is constantly uncertain and being upended by all the things that are around her and because of the chaos that the Kim family is bringing into her life. And I think she also captures the screen whenever she's on there with that like crazy nervous energy that she's able to, to put out there. And then, Oh my gosh, the end of the movie, um, Pak Sodam, like, like she's just like, so effortlessly cool. Yes. Like throughout the whole movie, you're just like, who is this girl? And she, when she wants something, she's just like, I'm going to get that thing and I'm going to take it even if she discovers she's eating dog food, like, you know, she's just like, this is me. I'm doing the thing. I'm getting, I'm getting everybody into this household. Yeah. And she's basically the mastermind of the whole thing, but she doesn't, I mean, she has this, like you said, this cool energy that like, she doesn't, she doesn't need to lord it over anybody. She doesn't need to boss them around. They all know. (laughs) Like they follow her lead. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I think the whole ensemble works so well together that even though Song Kang-ho is an amazing actor, when he's performing, like you almost feel like, you know, he's just part of a bigger team in this particular instance, where sometimes he just tends to outshine and outperform everybody else while not like really chewing the scenery, you know? And so, yeah, that, that's another thing that I really found impressive about Parasite is how well everybody works together in that movie. Yeah. It's like they're just like feeding off their own energy and it's elevating all of their performances. And they feel like a real family who's definitely pulled off a scam before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also agree with you about um, Jo Yo-jung. She's also magnetic and she's so, she plays this like, you can see, like she has all of that privileged sort of um, protected she has that like sort of delicacy of having been protected for such a long time and this little cocoon of being rich. Yeah. Well, at the same time, like she can wield that privilege like a knife. Um, but then she's also in this sort of vulnerable position because she's a woman and because of the kind of marriage and the role that she's in as like a housewife. It's very interesting. 
She yeah. she brings a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. Very, very impressive importance. I think those three are like the standouts, but I think everybody contributes to that film in in very strong ways. Like even uh, the the Kim mother, the mother of the Kim household, the um Chang Jin, like like she you can see how Pak Sodam and Chang Jin have like some sort of like their their character relationships to each other because Chang Jin performs the um, character, I think Chun Suk was her name or something like that. But she performs a character with such like class, even though when she's like on, like she's playing two characters. I have all the Kim family play two characters in the movie. They're themselves. And then they're the professionals when they're with the Pak family. And like, she's just so effortless. Like, and at the end when she kicks down the um, house, the original housekeeper down the stairs, she does it like, just like, I'm just kicking you and you're going down the stairs and I'm going to take care of this food and deliver it to the party. Right. Yeah. That kick was something else. And then like her expression, she just like flippantly like turns around and gets back to work. Yeah. And, and I like how that like strain of like effortless, cool, like is also something that appears in, um, Pak Sudam's character as well. And so you can see like the mother child relationship in, in that particular case. Whereas it, it's kind of interesting how Cheushik's character is the most uncertain in the family, you know, he's, mm-hmm. and it all comes back down to that, like rock. And he's been like, it's so metaphoric, but, but for what, what, what are you thinking about in the, in this moment where you get this rock and you're thinking it's metaphoric, you know? Yeah. And um, I think, in that same interview that I was talking about, Bong Joon-ho said, like, it, it's kind of a running joke that the, the rock is very metaphorical, but then, like, he also gets killed by that, you know, yeah. that object. So, like, you don't get killed by metaphor. Yeah. Although he doesn't actually die. And so that's... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And the rock was supposed... I think those rocks are supposed to re- represent prosperity, if I remember what they were talking about at the very beginning correctly. And so getting yes. the rock is supposed to make you prosperous. And I think the thing, is, and we're, I'm just going to go like into interpreting what the rock is about, but yes, please do. It, I'd love to hear. Thoughts. I, I, I don't think the rock is the actual metaphor, but because a uh, character thinks of it as a metaphor, he believes that it, by having the rock, he should be prosperous. Right. And I think at the end of the film, when he ditches the rock in the river, um, he's sort of given up on it, but he keep he maintains like a dream of becoming prosperous and rescuing his father out of the house as like a delusional way of ending the story, like being done, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind Could of you... how, how we think oh, what's go going on. So. Yeah, could you think of it as, like, because it's his friend, um, Pak Sojun's character in the beginning, who actually brings that rock and sort of gets him into that house in the first place. So it's all, mm-hmm. could you almost think of it as, like, this talisman of a potential for escape from their situation that eventually, like, turns into a weapon that's used against them. Um, yeah. And just well, backfires in a really horrible way. Yeah, 100%. And I think that in some sense, you might actually... Well, maybe it is metaphorical, but not in the way that um, Teo Shik's character thinks of it. But it might 
be a metaphor for capitalism. Kind of like the whole movie in itself is sort of a big picture look at capitalism and the way that it traps people in their classes and limits them in their various ways and how the poor are affected worse by this to a, a, a good degree. But at the same time, like even the rich are trapped and like it makes, it's just a strong critique of cap, you know, uh, contemporary capitalism as it is. Um, and I think the metaphor in this case is like the prosperity because a lot of what drives and keeps capitalism as a thing that people care about and, and defend is the idea the the mentality that you can start at the bottom and then get to the top, you know, mm-hmm. like everybody has this equal access, even though it's completely untrue that it, there is any sort of equal access, but everybody has a chance to make it big. Right. Yeah. And as I, long as I you th- work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. And that the idea that this is true um, for, for the poor in particular makes it, that the rock is a, a representation of that. Like prosperity is possible. And so Cheushik sees that and says, prosperity is possible and this is true. And that it represents capitalism in the fact that it's actually false, right? Like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't take him up anywhere. And in the end, he's beamed by capitalism, you know, yeah, right exactly. in the head. And then in the end, he, he abandons it and just keeps the dream up. But Everybody knows at that point when he's sitting in the underground apartment with, you know, one family member dead and one family member stuck in a house, right, forever, um, that it's never going to happen. Like, there's no way to to just climb up. Like, you either have to be incredibly lucky. No, that's it. That's actually it. That's there's it. No yeah, that's it. yeah. You just have to be incredibly lucky if you're going to make it out. And that's all you have. Yeah. And, and in a way, like, I don't know, did you, I, I really liked the ending because it kind of extends that fantasy of being able to get out into like a literal fantasy. Yeah. Um, and it's the only way that li- literally the only way that you can keep going, which is actually the only way that people do keep going, like keep getting up and going to work every day, even though like they're kind of on the edge of poverty and they're struggling, but they're like, yes, I can, I can get out of here. I can, you know, like it kind of keeps you from falling into the pit of despair, but yeah. you don't actually have any hope of reaching that, that dream. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess it does depend on the dream. Like I feel like in real life, people don't necessarily have to dream of getting all the way out, but just like making it through the day and getting through the next one, you know? Um, but either way, like, the hope of being able to get to that next day and that next week. And maybe, maybe this Christmas I'll be able to buy some gifts for my family. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that hope in itself is still what keeps driving people forward and going and feeding the machine of capitalism. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think uh, the ending is very, it's I've, when I first watched it, I was a little iffy on it just because like, it felt like a coda, like, like the movie was over and it just kept mm. going. But then you realized that in some way, it's like a metaphor, like Kitek being trapped in the house is a metaphor for uh, how capitalism suppresses anybody that tries to upend its ranks. Because that's what Kitek did by stabbing the the wealthy, uh, the 
the Pak father, um, Lee Sun-gyun's character. Yeah, he finally crossed the line in a really brutal way. Yeah, and then, like, he was, you know, seriously punished for it. Like, the whole family was punished for that line crossing, you know? Yeah. So I think it it ended up actually being a really strong statement about how everybody is trapped by by capitalism. Yeah. I think you're right. Like it could have ended at that moment where he like walks away from the house. Yeah. Um, but it did it did add some really interesting and powerful perspective to yeah. have all of that. And I love the whole um just the whole like being above ground versus underground and like even then there's like a underground and then there's like a sub basement under there and like how that right. you know it's it's sort of metaphor it's symbolizing the different levels which people are literally living in because of their social circumstances and like on one hand as you said like this movie is very on the nose um but then on the other hand like i think these are the real life things that affect people so deeply that like it almost seems silly to um be that subtle when you're talking about it when it's so important and then on the other hand there are there are so many like subtle and um like like the humor can be very subtle so like it's both very blunt and very subtle at the same time and i really love that yeah and it all works together and that's the best part about it you know every 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 layer in the film is all pointing towards the same thing in one way or another like yeah the comedy's pointing towards the same critique of capitalism that the the thriller is pointing to and you know and it all works together so flawlessly that it is just a near perfect film experience yeah i 100% agree i wanted to ask you um about whether you think that this is a similar, like a different but equally valuable experience if you don't speak Korean or understand Korean, or do you think that like it's enhanced if you can speak Korean and you understand the culture? Um, do you think it matters? Like, because obviously this has become a huge international hit. A lot of people are watching it with subtitles, um, and there's been a lot of discussion in it in the English language, and people have been talking about how it's so relevant to our times and. And of course, like these themes are very universal, but then there's also this specific flavor to like some of the humor. And so I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. There are some things that are in the film that are not going to resonate as strongly or things that aren't going to have an impact to somebody who's not familiar with Korean culture. But these are actually fairly minor in the film. And I think most of the film translates very, very well across cultures. The the things that I think aren't going to be really obvious is like the use of English in the film, where where in characters speak English in the film, it's like a sign of privilege, you know. Yes. Yeah. And, and people might not get that if you're not from Korea or at least uh, another country where the use of English is prized, right? So maybe another country like China, where people speak English as well, and it's seen as a a sign of privilege. It, they might understand it without having to translate it, but uh, a, an average American is just going to be like, oh, they also speak English too. That's kind of cool. And yeah, or like the way that even like they mix certain English words into their conversation where they don't need to, and it's like clearly like, yeah, I'm educated, I'm wealthy. Yeah, 
it's a yeah. sign of wealth because your average Korean will not do that. Like there are some Konglish words that that have become really popular that people will still use. But for the most part, your average Korean in conversation will never just break out in English, right? This only mm -hmm. happens if you're talking to somebody who wants to speak English specifically to show something to the other, their, their speaking partners. Um, or, you know, I mean, obviously if you're, if it's a Korean person talking to a non-Korean person, they might right. just use English as a, as a matter of course, but otherwise like Koreans amongst themselves will never speak English to each other unless they're like Korean Americans or, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's their other first language. Right. So the usage of English in that movie is, is something that I think people in the West might not pick up on as a class indicator and a challenge, like when Cho Yeo-jung speaks English to Cheo Shik's character, like she, she's doing it as a, I dare you to speak back to me in English. Prove to me that you can be on my level and be deserving to be in this household. You know, like when I, when she spoke it, I was like, oh, wow. She's like, she's testing him, you know? Mm. And, and that's something that somebody who's not familiar with the culture and the use of English in the language might not get. Yeah. And, I also oh, noticed that when I was watching it. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I also noticed that when I was watching it, I think it's a mixture of like also being from an Asian culture where English is a, is a mark of class privilege, mm -hmm. um, although in a slightly different way because in South Asia, because they were colonized by the British, the elite yeah. schools are all still English language education. Um, but then like the servant class or like regular people, they don't speak English. Um, a lot of them are actually literate. They can't even read and write their own language. So it's definitely like, I've definitely been in those circles where people are clearly like using English to, to show how rich and sophisticated and cultured they are. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I got that. And I also have, I think enough of a, an exposure to, to Koreans through like my friends and also from like media and stuff to kind of pick up on that. So I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. So that's one example, but I feel like outside of like little things like that, um, and they're minor, like you don't need to know that to appreciate the scene, because I think the scene where she's testing him, she still tests him, you know, and that does that thing where like, she, she wants, like, she, you know, tries to have him demonstrate how he's going to teach her daughter. And like, that is, you know, and then he does, instead of just like, doing the exercise, like he lectures her. Yeah. <laughs> um about how to like go for it and get it like trying to teach her that predator predatorial like instinct of the wealthy that impresses her right and and that i don't think you need to be korean to understand right mm, that's like universal rich people language right yeah. there yeah and the universal understanding of a lot of not rich people when it comes to understanding what they're trying to do there you know yeah. I don't want to necessarily say universal because not every society has like a strong capitalist system in it, but that's true. Yeah. But it's still a very commonly understood in, especially in first world countries, like anybody's going to watch it and, and know what's going on. And I think most of the movie actually operates in such a way that even if you don't speak Korean or understand the culture, you get pretty much everything like, and it's just a bonus at this point, if you speak Korean, because there's just nuances in Korean language that you'll never get, like, and matters of like deference. Um, but the interesting thing is, like, 
the deference that you'd often see, like the hierarchical def- deference you'd see in a lot of Korean, other Korean cinema or Korean TV shows, you don't actually get that in Parasite because all that is eclipsed by the deference in class and nobody has to wonder about the def- deference in class, right? Mm-hmm. So It's very clear. And like you said before, there are so many visual clues to what's going on as well. Like there's so many things going on in every scene that like, even if you don't get all the nuances of the language, mm-hmm. what you're seeing in the, on the screen is telling you so many things, even like with body language and the way things are framed and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh man, the one more thing that I love about this movie is the scene where um, the, the three of the, the Kim family has to hide under the table while the, the couple are watching their kid, right? And they're just like in a straight line under the table, trying not to get caught. And then the couple's like starts like having sex on the couch while the three of them are stuck under there. And those three, and it's like an example of all the things that the movie does right. First of all, they're stuck under the table like bugs, like the bugs that they were just talking about, you know, earlier, like the cockroaches, right? Under the table with the rich people looking down on them and the rich people enjoying themselves while the poor people have to hide and suffer, right? Yeah. And they're just, they're just, you know, having a good time there waiting for, you know, and the it's framed such that they're constantly below the camera and looking up at the, oh, looking at the table, but looking up towards where the, the rich people are above them. And it's just a, a microcosm of what the movie is constantly doing, right? There's a line that divides them because the space between the table and the couch exists. The two wealthy people are up above them on a the couch. They're stuck below, hiding, suffering, and then eventually trying to escape. And they're like the bugs. And you know, the movie makes two references to bugs, the, the stink bugs at the beginning, the cockroaches in the middle. And they are essentially the bugs. Yeah. Not to mention the title. Yeah, Parasite. There's also the the difference between how carefree the couple is and how like terrified for their lives the Kim family is. Like the they're just and I think that like there's a lot of moments throughout this movie where like the rich family is just so nonchalant and they say things offhand where and then like the Kims are like, Wow, this is something so serious and devastating to me. Like there's yeah. that scene where you know, their whole home gets flooded and like basically like covered in poop and they have to sleep in that emergency shelter. And then they have to go back to that house. And like, he has to, Kitek has to like go back and like drive Toyo Jung's character around. And she's like, Oh yeah. Like it's so lucky that we're, we're fine and nothing happened. And he's like, yeah, nothing happened. It's good. And you could just like see him like boiling with anger on the inside. Yeah. And the worst, like she praised the rain because it cleared up the sky. Right. And it also ruined my house. And like, you know, some people like found it a little weird that the movie would like, he would go like so hard on and, and basically kill uh, Mr. Puck in at the end. But like, it's the, the privilege and the disses that Mr. Puck and company have been like just pressing upon the family have just increased over the course of the family. And then at the point where his daughter has been, has been slashed with a knife and is bleeding out. Right. And the kid passes out. And yes, he could like, he could have a seizure and die as well. The fact that 
Mr. Pac is completely uninterested in the the slashed and dying Jessica and only wants to take his own son to the hospital, asking for the for Song Gang-ho's character to to abandon the daughter and then just drive the family to the hospital. Like you can see like that it is a genuine breaking point and that you don't have to wonder why he might, you know, take some vengeance out on on Mr. Pac at that point, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can, and it's like these small humiliations that have been building up to this point of like the ultimate just slap in the face of like your yeah. child is dying yeah. and this person, and this person is going to the same place Yeah, and, and they couldn't have the decency to be like, let's go, you know? Yeah. And then right at that moment, like he's like pulling, he, he, th- so Mr. Or so Song Kang throws the keys towards uh, Mr. Pak, but it doesn't make it there, and it lands near the body of the um, the man that was trapped under. Right after he got slayed by um, Chang Hejin, and as he tries to reach and get the keys, like the smell of his body like comes up. And he and the whole time he's been talking about how the poor have this smell, and even Cho Yo Jung's character like mentions it when driving when being driven by Kitek at the before the party, and then I, that that moment of all the moments is what really triggers him, right? Because he reacts to picking up the keys and having that smell of the poor come upon him, and he just like ha- and um, Lee Sang Yoon has like this this look of like total disdain and gross outedness from the smell, not the fact that he's pulling the keys from a dead body, right? Yeah. But just the smell is what gets him. And you can just see how like how much the rich loathe the poor, right? In yeah, that and moment. How, and how skewed their sense of like what is actually offensive and wrong in this situation. Yeah. Versus like what a regular human should be feeling in that moment. It's it's so off. Yeah. And so I mean, I wouldn't have stabbed him. But I certainly would have disdained Mr. Pak at that point, and and then you know, yeah. And Keaton goes in and cuts him down. I mean, I feel kind of bad because I don't like people dying, but at the same time, like, it's very relatable. You can yeah. definitely understand his motivations. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and like, that's one of the things that the movie does as well is like nobody is a hero, but no one is like totally a villain either. You mm-hmm. can all you can understand, like you said, like the rich family have their own ways in which they're kind of trapped in their situation. Um, they're also kind of terrible. The poor people aren't exactly like angels. No, you understand why? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're kind of awful themselves, even though you understand why they're doing what they're doing. They're trying to escape, but like, you know, they're con artists. Yeah. Um, they're murderers. Like, so it's, it's very interesting because you don't, it's not like you're rooting for one particular person. You're just kind of watching this thing unfold like a train that can't be stopped. Yeah. And, and to some extent, you know, like, the the Kim family they didn't need to get everybody working in that household like if they hadn't been greedy and it was just Cheushik and Pak Sudam working in that household they could have gotten away with it much easier right yes and that would have still been a ton of money for the the family you know just scamming them out of well I think uh, Kim Yu or Cheushik's character was actually doing his job right and mm-hmm. he might have also been like you know. Uh, making out with a, a child but um oh yeah i forgot about that <laughs> so yeah. questionable it's not just questionable i would say it's just straight up wrong but yeah uh, 
but then again, his his senior was doing the exact same thing. So, uh, um, but at the same time, like, um, yeah, he was actually doing the job that he was getting paid for. Yeah, he was actually doing the job that he was getting paid for, and it's only Paxodam's character that like conned them into hiring her as an art therapist, you know. <laughs> But had they just stopped with that, right, and not been greedy, they would have been fine, right? Because yeah. there's no nobody else that they needed to fool, right? Because everybody else was okay with that story. And so there is some level of critique of the poor being too greedy and reaching too far, right? Yeah, um, and even like the whole nightmarish third act would have never happened because they would have the housekeeper wouldn't have gotten kicked out. Yeah. Um, she would never have come back to try to save her husband. You know, like none of that would yeah. have been obviously the movie wouldn't be that good. But you know. Yeah. I agree and with it, what you're saying. Yeah, and that and the, you know, the movie has like a double twist in it, and it's just so it it's just so entertaining, you know. And the twist is used as a way to turn the movie on its head. But at the same like when the housekeeper comes back, right? And that turns it into a thriller suddenly because everybody has to hide everything that they're doing and the mess that they've made and they need to like let the housekeeper in. And then it not just does that, but then they open that that you know secret passageway to the bunker that's under the house. And you can understand why that exists because it does explain how – does the movie explain how those things exist in case of North Korean attack? I think so, yeah. And because it was built – the house was built by this like really fancy architect – yeah. Um, so he had the money and the the time to like actually design it, especially. Yeah, but like, but the fact that that even exists and that something that we had never thought of before, but at the same time would believe that could exist in that house, like adds that twist. And he's she's been hiding her own husband, and she's basically doing what the Kim family is doing now, essentially grifting the Park family, not as hard as the Kim family is doing. But she's hiding her husband in the same house and feeding him with their food. And they just think she just eats a ton. But it's just because she's sharing her food with her husband. Um, And that's like such a a crazy, like unbelievable twist. When she's up at on the 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 shelves and like pushing with her body to like open the open the shelf, you're just like, what is going on here? In this Such movie, a great that, uh, scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and then you know when it twists again and like it just turns into a horror movie, you get it at that point. Like the the man that was trapped under the the house had just watched his wife die, you know, yeah, and and you totally understand why he might go out, but. At that point, like you're just watching him, like, oh no, don't do it, don't do it, don't go on a murder spree, right? Yeah, it's like you're watching an accident and you like can't stop it. Yeah, you don't want it to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's like you said earlier, like everything that happens, it does take turns to different genres, but it's so smoothly done and the pacing is so brilliant and like it makes so much sense, even though we're not expecting it. Like it just keeps building. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it doesn't, you're not getting like genre whiplash or like tonal whiplash ever is because, except for like some very few moments of like genuine horror at the yeah. end, it never really loses that humorous, like satirical undertone 
even in like really dark moments like it's so funny like even things that shouldn't be funny are like really funny um so that you have that consistent tone throughout the whole film which like i don't know how he does it it's amazing yeah and i i part of it is just because that's his style like he's always like Pong Juno has always been like black comedy from yeah. the very his very first short film that I've seen all the way through every single one of his films have like a consistent level of black comedy. Even in I mean Okja and Snowpiercer for sure, but in Mother, which is I think one of his darker films in general, it, it still has like a sense of black comedy because at the end, uh should I can I spoil this? Is this okay? Oh, I mean I haven't seen it. Okay, I won't spoil it. Uh, but there are elements of black comedy even in that movie throughout. And and it's a bit more subtle than some of his other films where it's just more like in your face. But it's there. And I think that it's a, a uniting element of his movies. In mm-hmm. addition to like class critique or critique of power structures, which I think is like unending in his films as well. It's just part of his oeuvre. I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce that word. Yes. Took French. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do not understand French, but you know, I've seen the word a lot and I've always wanted to use it out loud. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. It took eight years of French. It's completely useless to my life, but I can pronounce stuff. That's good. So what should we talk about now? I would like to know actually how you feel as a, because we, we, as we mentioned before, there has been a lot of talk about this film. Um, I think it's definitely going to be nominated for Best Foreign Film. I've even heard some critics saying that it might be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. I don't know. I, I want to know what you think about that. But also, like, uh, what are your feelings about this movie getting so much recognition? I mean, like, it won at Cannes and, like, internationally. And if it did get nominated, it would be the first Korean film to do so. Like, as a Korean American, how do you how do you feel about that? Oh, and also as someone who has loved Korean film for such a long time. As a film lover, I am so glad that this film, at least, I mean, there have been some misses in the past where I think the Korean film should have been better received, especially versus the movies that did eventually get nominated. Like, I think that poetry was a huge miss for the Academy when it was submitted. Or actually, no, it was not even submitted. It was that war movie that got submitted. Okay, that's a huge miss for South Korea uh, to not submit poetry. But that was a movie that I think actually had a shot at making it to the foreign language film Oscar. Even even if it, I don't think it had a shot at Best Picture. But Parasite is a movie that I think is so strong overall that it absolutely demands like respect, you know? There's not a lot of movies that I see that hits on not just the critical level, right, where the critics are into it and, you know, it's an academy hopeful, but it's a movie that people who are not critics can still really enjoy, right? I think the thriller, the comedy, and, you know, the the constant change-ups make it a highly accessible film. And I think the combination of its prestige, like, you know, it's smart critique of capitalism and it's interesting way that it is filmed and the, the performance and all that, that, that make it a prestige film don't have, don't limit it from being accessible. And so it's like a film that works on multiple audience levels. And I think that's why it has the buzz now 
that perhaps other Korean films of the past just weren't able to do. Either they were like a taxi driver too aimed at the general populace that, and yeah, cr- critics like that movie too, but it's not like, and it also has Song Kang-ho, but, um, but it all, but it's not a movie that I think is going to like capture the attention of the, the fancy higher ups at that make movies and that are part of the Oscars, just because it's, it's so aimed towards everybody in Korea, specifically not outside mm-hmm. of Korea, because it's a very specific story, Korean story, right? This movie is for everybody. Like, I think that you just send your random moviegoer into the theater to watch it, and more of them will enjoy that movie than not. And I think that holds true if you like look at the audience scores for people that come out of the movie. Even if many Americans won't watch movies with subtitles, like the people that do watch Parasite, I think have a genuinely positive experience with that movie. Yeah. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes now. The audience score is 93% positive coming out of the theater. And that's, that's rare for a movie that has a huge critical claim to have that much positive audience score, but this is a movie that does it all. Right. And so because of that, I think it is, it would be such a tremendous mistake for the Academy not to put it at the very least in nomination for the um, best foreign film, or I think it's foreign language film right now, but that's, I mean, that's a stupid category and it's causing no end of stupidity for the Academy. Um, Yeah. I, that's, Oh, it's just a mess. Yeah. Like I, I would understand the best foreign film, but then if they did that, then all the British films would category would be okay for best foreign film. Right. Because they're not American and this is an American Academy. So I understand a little bit of why they're doing it the way that they're doing it, but I got, they got to, they got to figure some better way of doing it. Yeah. Because I that, don't know. That, that, it's yeah. Well, they're not going to be like former Imperial powers excluded. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be the ideal way to do it. Right. The best. And you can't say, you know, like the best, non-white film like what are you gonna do you know best non-colonizer film (laughs) yeah um but as it is like it it absolutely should be nominated for best foreign film and i i don't see a situation that it wouldn't make it there at the very least and i think if it gets nominated like there are some other really good foreign language films that are out there right now but i think it has a very high shot of of taking the cake especially if if it gets nominated to best picture it's almost certain to win best foreign picture and not win best picture even though yeah. it should win best picture i think it should um i think it should too, what, but i yeah i agree with you if it gets nominated for best picture it'll definitely win best foreign yeah. language film cuz that's what has happened in the past for a movie that is both best picture nominee and best foreign yeah, nominated, didn't that happen with Roma last year? Yeah, I think that's what happened with Roma. Yeah, it was nominated for both Best Picture and and I think the director got Best Director. Yeah. Um, but it ended up getting Best Foreign Language. Foreign yeah. Film. So yeah. I think that's the the most likely thing. I don't I don't think the Academy is still yet ready to give Best Picture to anybody that's not white or not not white that's not Hollywood, I guess. Yeah. Or you know at least. At least they might give it to like a British like film, but they're not going to give it to 
to a movie that is outside of the regular system and especially not a movie that's not in English. Like that's highly unlikely. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Unfortunately, sadly, yeah. I, I think of the current movies out there, Parasite is the closest to getting there, but you just pit it up against a movie that doesn't have subtitles and like its chances just like plummet because in the end, like even if people watch Parasite with subtitles and you know, it's clearly happening right now, just because of the audience response in addition to the um, critics response and the number of people that I've heard having watched the movie that, you know, aren't the usual suspects in terms of like Korean cinema or Korean drama fans or, you know, like cinephiles, like the, the, mm. you see, you know, you see like average people talking about Parasite here and there. It, it's still not like widespread, but people do watch, watch it. Right. And it's a huge hit for neon, especially who decided to distribute it in the U S yeah. I think it's record. It's the record breaking like highest gross for an international film in American theaters. Yeah. Or at least it was the last time I checked. And that's that's an incredible response because that means that a lot of non-cinephiles have gone to see it, right? Yeah. The word of mouth is just so strong for this one. Yeah. I think so, also like, sorry, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. I know I was going to say also like realistically, even though the Academy has been trying to diversify its members, if you think about who is mostly going to be voting, I don't know if those voters are are ready to <laughs> vote for best picture for a movie like this, yeah. um, considering that they're mostly like older white men. Yeah. It's just yeah. not. Yeah. I think it's, that's unlikely. It's unlikely. I mean, you know, the winners are usually some feel good movie that like either Pat that makes the voters feel good about themselves like green book. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I'm so mad about that. Uh, uh, or it makes them feel good about themselves as in like, like when they voted for Moonlight, it's like, oh yeah, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna give it to the to the movie about the the black gay men, you know, mm. because that makes me feel good because I'm so so darn progressive, you know, and helping helping out the black man. It's not about like necessarily picking the best movie of the bunch. I mean, if that if that were the case, like then the the picks for the Oscars would more likely fall in line with the picks for the what the what the critics pick, you know. Yeah, but yeah, it's very but, political a lot of times. Yeah, and that's how Green Book <laughs> wins Best Picture. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I I don't hate that movie. That's the thing. Like, I don't hate it, but I think it's it's such a, like a pat on the back for white people. You know. Yeah. And it's so unchallenging about anything that's going on, and I get that people want a feel good movie, but a feel good movie that doesn't like that doesn't really address the challenge of the situation that the people are in is not a movie that I think deserves high praise. Right. Yeah. Especially not in this moment, grappling with what we are as a culture and considering the other contenders that were available to people to vote for. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. disappointing. But Parasite in, in, in this context, I think it has so much going against it that it's near universal praise. Like we're talking what 99% on the rotten critics and a 93% audience score. Like even despite its universal praise, which I don't know if any of the other nominees are going to have, 
Uh, it's possible. I mean, I haven't seen all the 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 best regarded movies of this year, and there are certain movies that I haven't seen that I think I might also find amazing. Like I haven't seen The Lighthouse, but it looked really interesting. I haven't seen Knives Out. That looks like a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I'm going to see that tomorrow. I'm excited. Yeah, and I haven't seen Uncut Gems, which looks surprisingly good, all things considered, for Mr. Sandler. And so, <laughs> um, and so, there's a lot of contenders out there that I think might actually have a shot. And if you pit a movie that's in Korean against any of those, I don't know. I feel like they're going to vote for any one of those over yeah over Parasite. We also have 1917, which is like a World War One movie, and I've heard it's really good. So yeah. 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 <laughs> then you have a historical movie and you know Hollywood loves their historical movies. Yeah. So, especially the Academy, like they love biopics and historical movies. So, yeah. I think it's going to be a long shot for Parasite to to make best picture. I if it does, like yes. I w- I will stand up and clap and cheer and and give and think that it's actually worth giving a best picture to 100%. But the politics and the way that the Academy is formed and how it tends to vote. Like I think it's going to take it out of the running for even nomination for best picture. I don't think it's going to make it that far. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll cheer for it regardless. I'll definitely yeah. be cheering for it in uh, yeah. February. And I think Bong Joon-ho has a chance for making either best screenplay or best director as well. Like, I think that's yeah. much more likely than Parasite getting a best picture nom. I definitely think he can get best director. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my thoughts about the Oscars. I don't think it's going to make it to best picture, but it absolutely has to be nominated for best foreign picture. And if it is, I would say that it's like a, a very high shot of winning that as well as Pong Juno getting nominated for best director. There's a good chance of him being nominated. I don't know if he's going to get the win, but he's definitely got a high chance of being nominated. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It'll be exciting to watch. So we're at an hour and 40 minutes. So um, oh, I think if we go any longer, Barama's going to get mad at me because <laughs> she's the one that has to edit this. Okay. Um, yeah. But this has been such a great conversation. And I really thank you for sharing, you know, like deep knowledge of film history and, um, you know, the Korean industry and for sharing your experience growing up and your love of film. And like, it was just so much fun to talk about this movie with you. I really also really, really loved it. And it was just such, such so much fun to like go into the deep dive with spoilers and everything. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for letting me chat about it too. I've, I've been able to chat about it with some other people, but not too many other people have watched this movie that are amongst my friend circle, which is surprising, you know, given, given the number of cinephiles. But yeah, thank you so much for inviting me out to, to chat with you on the drama podcast. Absolutely. And you're always welcome back. You can come talk to us about my girlfriend is a Gumio. <laughs> oh my gosh. I I don't know. That that might be a divisive <laughs> chat, all things considered. How how much I dislike that series. You can come complain about rom coms with us. We also, considering how much we love them, we also complain about them a lot. So Okay. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to come back sometime in the future, perhaps when the stars align. And then we can we can have the full crew yeah. next time. So could you tell us where we can our, our listeners can find you on the internet yeah you can find me on twitter and on well i think twitter's the easiest place to find me at uh and you can find me at refresh underscore daemon that's d-a-e-m-o-n 
I also have a blog and the most relevant blog for your listeners will be in it underscore scenes dot blogspot.com. That's I N I T underscore scenes S C E N E S at dot blogspot.com. And I review movies there as well as occasionally TV shows. I have reviewed a few dramas there as well. Uh, I tend to tend towards older content in general, like older movies and older dramas, but there's all, obviously new stuff being put up there all the time as well. So that is another place that you can find me. And from there, you know, you can find my Tumblr or other things through those different links as well. And awesome. And we'll provide those links in the description of the episode as well. So you can easily, easily ah, find so much. refreshed. Yeah. And um, it's a great blog. You should definitely go read it. I enjoy reading it as well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that you're not one of the, the many bots that compose the majority of my readership. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Thank you so much for joining us, Refresh. Thank you for having me. Bye. Goodbye.